0: Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. It's easy to get sidetracked while writing a book, but imagine being interrupted by the President of the United States. That happened to Tom Wheeler, who was in the midst of writing a history of communication networks when President Obama appointed him to be Chairman of the Federal Communications Commission in 2013. Wheeler went from writing history to participating in it, making consequential decisions affecting emerging technologies on net neutrality, cybersecurity, privacy, and the 5G mobile network. Wheeler is a former president of the National Cable and Telecommunications Association and former CEO of the Cellular Telecommunications and Internet Association. After leaving the FCC at the end of President Obama's second term, Wheeler finished his book, and it was published last month by Brookings Institution Press. It's called From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. I talked to Wheeler about observing and influencing rapid technological change. Joining me now is Tom Wheeler, author of From Gutenberg to Google, former FCC chairman. Tom, we're delighted to have you with us on the New Books Network. Welcome. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Nathan. It's great to be with you.
0: This book gives us a broad historical sweep of the history of communications technology, and it also zooms in on these, on these pivotal moments and gives us vivid descriptions of them. I want to ask you about some of them. But first, I want to ask you just about being a historian. Uh, You have a blurb on your book from Ken Burns, who calls you, quote, one of the foremost explainers of technology and its effects throughout our history. That strikes me as unusual for someone from the telecom industry and a former FCC chairman uh, to get a blurb like that from someone like Ken Burns. How did you become a historian of communications technology, and what difference does being a historian make while you're in the midst of the industry and then at the FCC?
1: wow that's a chock-a-block question nathan but i you know i have always been um a a history buff uh, for you know for, since when i was a, a small kid and it uh, it actually goes back to my grandfather exposing me to uh, to history and and it stuck um the um before president obama uh, asked me to become chairman of the fcc um i was indulging myself um, in the history of networks, because I've spent my professional life um, uh, with new networks and uh, the development of the technologies, how interact interacts with public policy, etc. And, um, and so I decided, well, let's go back and look at the history here. And so um, <clears throat> when he um, asked me to, to, to become chairman, I was about halfway through what became this book i had I had finished the history reviewing uh, what I thought were the major uh, technology changes that were determinative, and I had to put it aside. but then the fascinating thing happened to me and and that was I discovered that being chairman of the FCC put me in a position where i Personally, got to deal with the challenges that I, the kinds of challenges that I had been studying. You know, it, it's fascinating. The FCC um, regulates about one sixth of the economy, but the other five sixths depends on it. And, um, and so uh, as our networks evolved, and uh, and what I talk about in From Gutenberg to Google is how we really have a history of both uh, the communications and computing evolving on parallel paths, and then suddenly joining to create our new reality. Uh, as that happened, I was sitting in a decision-making position, and it was a it was a challenge and a wonderful experience. And I think that my I know that I brought my historical. Uh, understanding to bear, and I hope it was helpful.
0: So let me ask you about some of the key moments in history that you talk about in this book. You talk about Gutenberg, and of course I was familiar with the fact that he had the first printing press. He put ink on paper in a mass-produced way. Uh, But I didn't realize what a labor it was for him to find the right ink and find the right paper. It seems like such a mundane problem. What challenge uh, did he have to overcome in simply finding the right ingredients for his breakthrough?
1: Oh, my golly, Nathan, I, I think I identify 11 different discoveries that Gutenberg had to make. I mean, you know, we think that, oh, well, he, you know, you take a wine press and you put some type in it and you press it down. and Thank you very much. That does the job. No, it was far more complex um, than that. How do you design the type? Uh, how do you get them all to look uniform um, if, you've ever, if you've ever tried to even up the legs of a table, and you cut off one, and you know how all of a sudden it's no longer balanced, that's the problem he faced on one simple question, which is the length of the type stock. And, and, but, but as he went through these 11, he would find that he'd solve one problem, and it would create another. He'd solve that, and oh my golly, it would go back and affect the other. And this was an over a decade-long process of trial and error, trial and error, uh, before Gutenberg uh, finally was able to put it all together and, and the, develop the movable-type printing press around about 1450.
0: And I'd never thought of it before, but all the different kinds of ink that he went through some were too runny, some were too smudgy i guess and and the paper similarly some could hold the ink and some couldn't and he just had to iterate and iterate over and over till he found the right mixture
1: exactly and 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 there's a real lesson for all of us in there, right, which is if at first you don't succeed, so what <laughs> try again.
0: So Gutenberg liberated information from the control of the church. You talk about Martin Luther and the impact Luther had in part simply because of the distribution of Luther's words. Uh, Is that what makes it sort of the first step or a first step in the story of what would become the Internet and the information revolution, the fact that information can be distributed at a scale and out of the reach of central authority structures?
1: So, you know, Nathan, in in From Gutenberg to Google, I I call the printing press the original information revolution Um, because up until that point, information had been locked away to be used only by priests and the powerful and kept from the people. And Gutenberg picked that lock And allowed the free flow of information across a network of independent print shops that sprung up across Europe. You mentioned Luther. The fascinating thing about the Luther story is that the concepts that he expressed in his 95 theses that he tacked to the church door in Wittenberg um, were not new concepts. Um, there had been uh, uh, theologians across Europe for many years who had been talking about the similar kinds of concepts and the ability to have a direct relationship with God rather than have to go through an intermediary such as the Church. But their ideas only got as far as their voice went. And suddenly Luther had this ability to extend his ideas in this new technology. And in From Gutenberg to Google, I I call Luther the first mass media evangelist. And that's what he was. He harnessed this new technology um, to to lead a revolution.
0: So the printing press liberated information from the grip of a central authority structure. You talk about the railroad as liberating information and society and industry as a whole— from the constraints of distance and then right on the heels of that the telegraph liberating information from the constraints of time you open with a poignant story about samuel morse learning of the death of his wife this one was new to me can you tell the story and why that compelled morse to find a way to break down these constraints of time
1: so Morris everybody thinks of morse as um uh, as the guy who developed the telegraph um but his first claim to fame was that he was a painter, a portrait painter, a, a big deal portrait painter. And uh, the city of New York um, wanted a painting of uh, of Lafayette to hang in um, the city council chambers next to Washington and Hamilton. And they commissioned Morris to do it. And he came to Washington, where Lafayette was visiting, in order to have – Sittings and paint the portrait. And while he was here, his wife died, totally unbeknownst to him. He wrote her some beautiful letters. Her name was Lucretia, saying that he longed to be back with her and he was looking forward to it. Um, and um, and then he got a letter from his father, saying that she had died while he was gone. He immediately uh, went back to uh, to home, and by the time uh, he got there, she had been buried. And so he did not have the uh, benefit of the kind of instantaneous communication that he subsequently
0: made available
1: uh, to the rest of the country.
0: So his uh, invention of the telegraph also had many fits and starts and bumps that it had to overcome, and you tell about those, but of course it became a triumph. And um, you write also about the social reception of these technologies, including the telegraph. There's a memorable quote where one commentator talked about the, quote, ambivalent anxieties of people with one foot in manure and the other in the (laughs) the telegraph office, which was probably literally true. They had been standing in the field earlier that day within this self-contained agricultural system of the family farm. And then stepped into this uh, into this network center or this this node in the network, where they had access to to information on a broad scale. I assume, as you wrote, you had the sense that you had to talk about this social reception, and in some cases, the lagging response time that people had to adjusting to uh, to the changes that that new communication technology was bringing them.
1: Yes, you're right, Nathan. and there you know there are two results. Are two things that you can that that, that flow out of the discussion and from Gutenberg to Google. One is that is that our quote new unquote technologies today really aren't. They're derivative. They're they're evolutionary in a Darwinian kind of way, and second that when these earlier technologies were themselves new. The impact that they had on uh, society and the economy was substantial. And I love the one foot in manure and one foot in the telegraph office because it does such a fabulous job um, envisioning the conflict that people in the 19th century, middle of the 19th century, faced. And, and, you know, today you and I both hear people going around saying, oh, we've never had so much change as we're having today. Uh, my comment to that is baloney. Uh, it's it, the kind of change that uh, happened in the middle of the 19th century when the railroad, the first high speed network, eliminated distance and geography as a controlling factor in life. Think about that for a second. As long as mankind had existed, you were limited by animal muscle power, either yours or another animal, as to how far you could go in a day. And all of a sudden, the train is speeding past that and changing the scope of 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 economic activity and personal interrelationships. And then immediately on the heels of that comes the telegraph, the first electronic network, and suddenly time, which had always been something that determined the value of information. Were you getting your information in a timely manner compared to somebody else? Time evaporated. And so we had these two things happening right on top of each other in the middle of the 19th century. And um, and and that was a level of upheaval that we haven't seen since.
0: And around the same time, in addition to that, although much less heralded and much less lamented than the railroad and the telegraph, one of the heroes of your story is Charles Babbage. Tell us about his invention and... Um, the impact it didn't have, and yet how it became the precursor of, uh, of modern computing.
1: Charles Babbage was a, uh, a British mathematician. He was a fellow of the uh, Royal Astronomical Society. And, um, and one of the things that he had to do in that role was to uh, compute um, the tables um, uh, astronomical tables: When's the sun going to come up? When's it going to get sit down? So things like this. Basically, what it was was just doing a series of multiplication problems that would change slightly every day, but everything built on everything else. And you can imagine how tedious and laborious that was. The way, the way it would work is that two of these mathematicians would would do the math, and then they would compare each other's answers to try and figure out where one of them had, had slipped up. And one day in the midst of this, Babbage is reputed to have said, I wish these these calculations had been performed by steam. Because at that point in time, in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain, um steam was was driving the production of coal steve was steam was driving mills and why can't we use steam to create a mechanized solution for these kinds of mind numbing handwritten mathematical calculations that that he was going through and so we sat down to develop it and he developed incredibly detailed blueprints. He was only able to build uh, a small uh, replica uh, of it. Um, But it turns out that he had all of the concepts there. He had the computing capacity, he had the, uh, the storage capacity, he had the input, he had the output, he had all of the key functions that today we see as a computer and he was doing it all with spokes and gears and um and the milling capabilities uh of that time and interestingly enough uh the london science museum uh a few years ago decided they would take babbage's designs and um and see if actually they could build it uh and if it would work and by golly it did and the fascinating thing is that we all hear the stories of Alan Turing and, 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 and some of the great uh, uh, pioneers of computing, and they didn't know about Charles Babbage. Babbage's innovation died um, with him, and, uh, and so he's actually the father uh, of modern computing. He's also just a, a, a fun little factoid. He was at the run of the first commercial steam railroad in the UK um, in which somebody was hit and killed. Um, and he invented the cowcatcher to prevent that kind of thing.
0: A much less sophisticated invention and yet one that uh, that made a bigger splash at the time. Maybe <laughs> splash right. isn't the right word.
1: That's right. There you go. But it just shows you the uh, the, the 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 breadth of Babbage's mind.
0: Another under-heralded hero of yours, as we turn to the 20th century, is Paul Barron. And um, early in the century, he developed uh, what you call packet switching. I'm wondering if you were able to give an explanation, sort of an entry-level explanation of what that is, um, and why it goes against the intuition of a non-computer scientist like me, which is breaking something up into little pieces uh, is less efficient. It would make more sense to keep it all together. Why did Barron find out that that isn't true?
1: Well, let's go back to why Barron um, developed this in the first place. Uh, you know, it was the height of the Cold War. And uh, the United States had said that it would not launch first strike, but that it would have a second strike capability that um, that was guaranteed, uh, what was called at the time, mutually uh, assured destruction. And um and. That second strike capability was tied together by the telephone network, by AT&T. And the structure of the telephone network was to move from one centralized point to another. Think about big switchboards. And we all know, we all can see the picture of the the switchboard operator sitting there, putting one wire in and pulling it out and then connecting it to, to another. Well, those kinds of large functions, automated then by the by the by this period in time, um, uh, had um, created vulnerabilities in the network. So if the Soviets wanted to take down our second strike capability, all they had to do was knock out a couple of these switching hubs, and all of a sudden, the word would not be able to go out to launch the missiles or or send out the bombers. And so <clears throat> the Defense Department hired the Rand uh, Institute in, uh, in California, uh, and Paul Barron, who was working there, was assigned this project, and thinking, how do we survive a first strike so that um, uh, the message can get out to authorize the retaliatory response? And so Paul's concept was—I called him Paul. I mean, I was I was truly blessed to to know Paul Barron and to and 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 to hear these stories firsthand from him. Um, and so his comment, his his concept was, well, let's not have centralized networks. Let's have distributed networks, where all of this activity. Goes out, and so instead of looking like a wagon wheel with everybody leading all the lines leading into a central point, let's have something that looks like a fishnet, and we'll break the uh, the, the the message. We'll digitize the message, and then break it up into its smallest parts. Wow, that begins to sound like Gutenberg, right? But we'll break it up into its smallest parts, and then send those parts over this uh, this distributed fishnet-like um, uh, uh, infrastructure. And if one of those hubs gets taken out, the data will just work itself around because everything there's you know there's so many other ways of getting to the endpoint. And then we'll tell the data how to reassemble itself at the end. And that was called packet switching, and, um, and that changed the nature of how networks work, and it changed the um, economics incredibly because it used to be that when you made a telephone call – and I paused here for a purpose – that silence tied up the line. And um, and and you would have an entire circuit from from your phone to my phone, an entire circuit going over miles and miles and miles and miles would be tied up and um, and and pauses and, and 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 this sort of thing still tied up the circuit. And so Barron's idea was we take all of these small packets and we shove them in you know, cheek to jowl, all on top of each other. They go through this fishnet of, uh, of of a network and reassemble themselves at the end, and and it was an incredibly revolutionary concept. I remember Paul telling me one day when he first went to explain this to the engineers at AT and T, who had been brought up on the, well, it's a it's a it's entire circuit you have to leave open. And he said, no, you're constantly taking it down and putting it up, constantly taking it down and putting it up. And he said to me, he says, Tom, it was as if I was speaking Swahili. It was so uh, alien a concept. Um, But it is today the concept that is at the heart of the Internet, this kind of a distributed network delivering small packets of data that then get reassembled
0: at the end. There are two stories in your book. Um, There are more than two, but there are at least two stories involving AT&T that I wanted to ask you about because they stood out to me. One of them you witnessed firsthand as a participant in the telecommunications industry. Uh, First is how AT&T forged a monopoly in the early 20th century with the consent and with the cooperation of the federal government. Uh, And then later, in the mid to late 20th century, you describe how AT&T was pushing the federal government, the FCC, to enable, I guess, some spectrum uh, allotment for mobile telecommunication capacity, which, of course, would be revolutionary. And you describe how the FCC year after year just dragged its feet. Those two instances stood out to me as potential extremes when it comes to the government's relationship to technological development. On the one hand, it can aid and abet a monopoly which is not good for the market or for consumers. On the other hand, it can drag its feet and slow down innovation. Is it fair to seize on those incidents as kind of extremes when it comes to government action or inaction, and were those extremes or extremes like those in your mind when you uh, went to work at the FCC?
1: Well, uh, obviously, uh, yes. uh, Those experiences were things that I kept in mind uh, when I was chairman of the FCC. but, you know, Nathan, one of the so – so your first story. What we talk about in, in From Gutenberg to Google is a man by the name of Theodore Vail, who um, was the first CEO of the modern uh, at and And he developed this concept of a natural monopoly where he said, hey, look, it makes no sense to have two wires going into a house, um, and I will make a deal with the government. Give me the monopoly and a guaranteed or fair rate of return um, and um, and and I will allow you to heavily regulate me and it worked as a strategy to build out uh, the telephone network um, and um, and, uh, and and so you can't criticize it other than its inability to keep up with the times because as let's go back to paul Barron. as the cost of running networks decreased then they need to have only a monopoly even a regulated monopoly also decreased and um and so uh interestingly enough at&t then starts looking for how do i um expand uh, and and wireless um uh, was was one way. The problem was the spectrum, um, the public's airwaves, um, licensed by the FCC, was principally seen then as something to be used for broadcasting. And an FCC commissioner at that point in time even, even criticized the AT&T proposal, saying, why would you waste spectrum on something as mundane as a telephone call? Little do they know uh, how um, wireless connectivity would end up reshaping our experience and the and the future of the twenty first century. But the point of both of those is that government plays an essential role. It is quite popular these days to run around trashing government and regulators. But we have to have somebody who makes the rules. Somebody who says this is how the spectrum is going to be used. This is how the network is going to be managed. You know, even Adam Smith, you know, who uh, the great had talked about the great invisible hand um, uh, of the marketplace, said you need to have a basic set of rules for that invisible hand to work. And the challenge is, as technology evolves, how do those rules also evolve? And that's the kind of challenge that we're in right now.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And so you come to the FCC in the midst of the flourishing and burgeoning growth of the internet and mobile telecommunications. On this last point you just made, uh, of course, when you were appointed to the FCC, uh, critics said, well, there's someone who's an advocate for the industry, a lobbyist from the industry who's now being asked to regulate it. Um, Did you feel that you had to make a transition when you switched hats from being in the industry to regulating it? And did you feel pressure from those critics uh, to show that you could act in the public interest in addition to or perhaps against the interests of the industry?
1: Well, I think there are two things there, Nathan. One is that um, some of those folks uh, really um, didn't understand what I had been doing previously. I had worked for the cable television industry um, when cable television was trying to break down the barriers of the monopolies of the television networks. Um, And it was a pro-competitive agenda that I was advocating. I was working for the wireless industry similarly in the early days of the cellular phone when we were trying to make sure that the cellular phone wasn't just an adjunct to the wired phone, but was something that would grow in and of itself. And the wired companies weren't too happy um, with that. But, you know, I was asked uh, a question similar to yours uh, when I was before the Senate for my confirmation hearing. And one of the senators um, pointed out who I had previously worked for, and and could I uh, be, uh, be fair uh, in the new job? And I said, Senator, I said, you know, um, when I was representing the cable industry and the wireless industry, they were my client. Uh, I was their advocate. I hope I was the best advocate that they could possibly have. But now – my client is going to be the people of the United States, and I want to be the best possible advocate for the consumers of the United States. And that's what I tried to do.
0: You write in your book about implementing a new regulatory paradigm in your time at the FCC. Right. What was that paradigm, and what is the right role of the FCC in, in times of, of rapid and sweeping uh, technological change?
1: Well, Nathan, we're stuck with a structure right now, uh, a structure of government that was created um, in the industrial era and uh, um, and based upon industrial management. So so what was industrial management? Industrial management was a rules-based bureaucracy. There was a guy on the floor, and they were, they were guys, there was a guy on the shop floor who followed the rules to do a specific job. Above him was a supervisor who looked at several guys to make sure they were following the rules. Above him was a manager who looked at several of the supervisors, and it went on up. And this was enabled, even from a distance, by the telegraph. So when it came time in the late 19th and early 20th century to regulate those industrial entities we fell back on the structure the only structure that was known at that point in time for management and that's this kind of rules-based bureaucracy so we should not be surprised that that's the way our government is structured today the challenge is that now things are moving so fast and, um, and change is thrusting us into so many new challenges so quickly that we have to be more adroit than, and adept than, um, than the traditional rules-based approach has. Uh, I, at one point in time, I ran a software company, and the way in which you used to build software was the same way in which you built cars, one thing and then it led to another and led to another and led to another and the next thing you know finished product rolled off uh, the uh, the uh, production line it was called the waterfall technique because you had this vision of it going over the Falls it's done well today software is never done you know you're always getting updates to your iPhone you're always getting updates to your Microsoft operating system there are always new things happening and that's called agile software development and so my concept was how do we bring agility to government and, um, and I tried it in three specific uh, areas in the open internet rules in the privacy rules and in cyber and in all three of those instances uh, the industries screamed that um, this did not provide them uh, certainty Uh, it was regulatory uncertainty because we don't really know what what might what the next rule might be based upon what you discover and uh, then of course on the other side they said oh but you can't have strict rules um, because that inhibits innovation so you say well wait a minute okay i'll deal with the innovative process with innovative regulation no 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 we don't want that really what we don't want is regulation at all Um, But that concept is what I called uh, the new paradigm. Um, And um, unfortunately, when the Trump administration uh, came in, uh, they repealed all of those initiatives. But I do think that we have to have a new, new approach
0: to how we run government. It strikes me, as you describe it, that there are so many ways to disappoint or displease people with the work of the FCC, uh, both those who say, well, it's the FCC is bureaucratically squelching innovation, it's a censor, um, and then even those who, you know, some of the same critics I mentioned say, oh, well, this is too friendly um, to, to the marketplace. Uh, did you have that sense, and how did you try to sell the role, uh, the new role, as you saw it? Of the FCC as a, as a advocate for the public interest.
1: Well, I think that it is um, uh, that that is the the role that Congress established uh, for the FCC. The challenge is that the public interest is a malleable concept. You know, nobody ever came in to see me, Nathan, and said, "Hey, Tom, now listen, really, you know, what I want to do is good for me. I know it's not in the public interest, but it's good for me." They always came <laughs> they always came in and said, "Here is my definition of the public interest. Right. And if you do this, it will help with that." So, so I came to the conclusion that That what I needed to be focusing on was the common good, and the common good is composed of lots of pieces of how different people view the public interest, but designed in a way to do the most good for the most people, and that's the
0: art of governing. So one specific case, uh, perhaps one of the defining issues of your tenure, uh, which is now in the news again, is net neutrality. And your administration or your time at the FCC, you had a significant um, accomplishment, which was reclassifying, and tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, reclassifying the Internet under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934- Uh, reclassifying the Internet as a telecommunication service rather than an information service. Can you explain the significance of that and the role that that classification plays in net neutrality?
1: Well, let me go back again to history. You talked about Morris and the Telegraph a moment ago. Um, In 1862, Congress passed the uh, Pacific Telegraph Act. Which authorized the uh, the telegraph, you know, to the to the west coast, and um, and in that they also established the first set of rules for this new technology, and they said that the telegraph must be available on a first come first serve, non discriminatory basis to all users. This was 1862. All we did in the open Internet rule in 2015 was apply that same concept. You have an important, if not essential network, the most powerful network in the history of the planet. It is the essence of both how we live our lives and how businesses are run. And to think that a handful of what are typically local monopolies should be able to make the rules for the benefit of themselves rather than providing the same kind of openness that as far back as the early telegraph everybody realized was necessary is what the open internet rules were all about and when you talk about information service versus telecommunication service that's just basically Where is it inside the statute that governs the FCC that you place that authority? The companies obviously wanted no oversight at all. Um, We didn't go there. We created the open Internet rules. The companies took us to court twice, and we won in court. They appealed that to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to review it. So that lower court uh, decision stands. And then the Trump FCC came in and repealed everything, did what the court wouldn't do, and reversed everything. That now is back before the same court to judge whether what the Trump FCC did is in the public interest. Uh, I happened to be in the courtroom when uh, that case was argued, and I'm hopeful that, um, that we'll see um, uh, the, the ways of the Trump FCC reversed and an open Internet restored.
0: So your successor at the FCC, Ajit Pai. Is making some of the arguments that you just mentioned saying, well, net neutrality inherently squelches innovation and we didn't need this reclassification for the first 20 years of the Internet. Why, why do we need it now? Um, where do you disagree with him?
1: I hope he reads my book and discovers that the reason that we got uh, the Internet in the first place was that we had a telephone network that was a common carrier, just like the telegraph was made to be, um, and that all of the new services – that um, were uh, using that network whether it be uh, you know AOL or uh, CompuServe or all the way back the really early services were able to get on because they had to get on and you compare that to cable which at that point in time didn't have that obligation and Comcast for instance picking and choosing who they're going to offer service to. And when the FCC stepped up and said, no, no, Comcast, you've got to uh, allow open access, Comcast took them to court. And the court ruled, you can't do that. Unless, you can't tell Comcast they must let everybody on unless you say they are a common carrier like the telephone network was. and um, And that was the reality that we faced several court cases later. Um, and um, and so what we did was say, I don't care whether you're AT&T or Comcast, um, you are a common carrier. You must provide first-come, first-served, non-discriminatory access. Um, and, um, and, and then back to the concept of regulatory agility, the FCC reserved for itself what became known as the general conduct rule, which said that we know how fast things are moving. And um, we have the right uh, to be the referee on the field uh, to determine whether a specific action is just and reasonable, a specific legal concept, by the way, um, and throw the flag if we don't think it is, because that's the kind of agility that is necessary to oversee this incredibly agile innovation.
0: Well, speaking of agile innovation, you talk about how the creation or the allowance of allotment on the spectrum for the 5G network was i believe you call the most significant accomplishment of your tenure can you describe what your, uh, what the FCC actually did under your leadership to enable the creation or the flourishing of the 5G network. And what's both the promise that it holds and the threat that the, I guess, the U.S. intelligence community is, is worried about uh, that China, Chinese telecom companies are playing an outsized role in creating the 5G network and could abuse that. What's the positive and negative of, of the 5G network?
1: Great question, Nathan. And and I don't think I called it uh, the most significant, but I think I said it was one of, because I mean, clearly net neutrality, privacy, cybersecurity, etc. were all uh, connecting schools were, were all significant decisions. But also, we were the first country in the world to make 5G spectrum available. And you hear a lot today about we're in a race for 5G with China. Well, it was during our tenure that we freed up Spectrum to be used for 5G, and it's today being used for 5G. The challenge is that throughout history, networks have always been attack vectors. You know, I don't care whether it was the road system or the waterways or or animal paths, were, uh, networks were always the way in which somebody launched an attack. And so why are we surprised that the network of the 21st century would similarly be an attack vector? And so what we did when we uh, made this new 5G spectrum available was we said, let's get in front of the curve on this. And we required that the 5G standard, which is being developed by the industry, not by government, that the 5G standard needed to have proactive cybersecurity protections built in. And then we opened what was called a notice of inquiry in which we said to America's best technical minds, now, tell us how you do that. And when the Trump FCC came in, they killed both of those initiatives. So the concern is that once again, we're in a situation where instead of dealing with cybersecurity as a forethought we're going to have to deal with it as an afterthought and that ends up being a lot like whack-a-mole <laughs> you know you just something pops up and you hit it something pops up and you hit it we missed our our shot to be able to design a structure that, that would give us the advantage rather
0: than the bad guy so your book gives a very clear-eyed view of these threats, but it also maintains, I think, this overall optimistic tone about the possibilities that technology affords. I'm I'm curious. I've been detecting, just in what I'm reading and the podcasts I'm listening to, since 2016, um, some more hesitation and some more uh, articulations of regret about what the Internet has become and how it's emerged. Uh, One of the most memorable stories I read last year was an article in New York Magazine called An Apology for the Internet from the People Who Built It. All these (laughs) Silicon Valley insiders saying, whoa, this is not what we intended. Um, I'm curious if you, uh, as connected to uh, the industry and the movers and shakers in communications technology as you are, if you detect uh, some fading of that optimism, um, and I'm also curious with your view as a historian, is this just a natural phase in the life cycle of technology or are there fundamental flaws in the system that have to be addressed um, if if it's going to continue to flourish?
1: Wow, we can do a whole uh, program just on that. But let me let me let me try. Um, the um, you know, as I said a moment ago, I I ran a software company at one point in time, and um, I used to have a sign, uh, a handwritten sign, uh, quoting a Douglas Adams Hitchhiker Guide, a line from Douglas Adams Hitchhiker Guide that that hung in my office that said sometimes you can get so excited about the fact that you can get it to work that you forget that it doesn't have any purpose at all. <laughs> and, and what's happened with the Internet is that people have been saying, hey, do you think we can do this and then go build it? <clears throat> and they haven't been – they've lost sight of what are the effects of what you're building. And how do you mitigate untoward effects how do you start thinking at the outset gee if I'm collecting all this private data what are my obligations um, and how do I have a, a, a duty of care to anticipate and mitigate um, what could be happening as a result of that so so we, we have just but we have been we have been hell-bent um, technology wise to say wow here's something neat i can build let's go build it now to do that since government has a hard time keeping up and 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 again government is representative of the people and the people have a hard time keeping up the pioneer gets to make the make the rules it's always been this way you know a pioneer in a in a new territory always gets to make the rules Until those rules begin to impinge on the greater public interest. And I think that's where we are today. And so the debate and the discussion that we need to have going on into the future is um, what are the new rules for the information internet age? You know, you go back to let's go back to when you were talking about uh, one foot in uh, in manure and the other foot in the telegraph office. Uh, um, at that point in time, the, the new networks enabled industrialization in this country, and everybody discovered that the rules that had been sufficient for agrarian mercantilism up until that point in time were no longer adequate for the new industrial capitalism and so the people through their representatives came together and put guardrails in place things that we take for granted today antitrust uh, consumer protection worker protection etc those rules allowed us to have an incredibly vibrant growing economy that benefited Everyone. Now we're in a new situation where we ha- where the industrial where industrial capitalism has been replaced by internet capitalism, and you know the rules that worked for industrial capitalism just may not be sufficient to deal with the new iterations of challenges that are coming at us as a result of the internet and are coming at us at gigabit speeds. And so we need to once again say, what are the new rules? What are the new guardrails that we need to put in place to make sure that the natural excesses of capitalism, of people making their own rules, have buffers, have guardrails, Uh, to make sure that they don't impinge on individual rights in the public interest. That is an exciting debate, and that's the
0: debate that we're going to have for the next several years. So you mentioned before, and you write in the book, that this period that we're living in and that you participated in and uh, helped to lead and regulate – uh, does not yet qualify, does not yet supersede the mid-19th century as the greatest right. period of technological change. That surprised me a little. Uh, certainly there was huge a huge scope of change in the 19th century, um, and there was a fast pace of change, but your story just gives us so many huge breakthroughs back-to-back in the in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I just want to hear more about that. What might it take? Uh, what could it take? to qualify this era or an era we're about to enter as the most transformative in the history of communications technology?
1: Well, Nathan, one of the things I say in From Gutenberg to Google is that it is never the primary network that is transformational but the secondary effects of that network. Um, And, uh, you know, it wasn't the steam locomotive that was transformational. It was how the steam, how the death of distance transformed uh, the nature of economic activity, um, uh, and and that's exactly where we are right now. We have, we are on the cusp. I think the term I use in the book is that we are on the cusp of that kind of transformational future, enabled by the combination of ubiquitous connectivity, and low-cost, high-power computing so that there's a chip in everything. And the, I think I, in the book, in Gutenberg to Google, I say that there are four things that I think will carry us across so that our time actually does rank, if not with, above the the transformational periods of history. One is the changing nature of a network. We've talked a little bit about this, but but 5G and and what's called Web 3.0 um, is changing the nature of networks from being something that connects point A and point B and delivers something back and forth to a series of interconnected microcomputers which instead of just transporting information are orchestrating information to create new products. Autonomous cars are the orchestration of thousands of data points simultaneously so that we don't hit each other. So the movement from transporting to orchestrating is one. The second is artificial intelligence. And there's an awful lot of talk that everybody is having about artificial intelligence. And I, I, I think that the, the key thing that we need to make sure is that we keep reminding ourselves we are in charge, we get to make the rules. How are we going to make those rules? But artificial intelligence clearly uh, uses, uh, artificial intelligence is really nothing more. Than um, than being able to dip into lots of databases, bring them back, bring that data back to an algorithm, um, and uh, and have a pretty good prediction. Um, and, um, and again, it's the combination of ubiquitous uh, uh, connectivity and low cost computing. The third is uh, blockchain. Blockchain is a matter of redefining trust. Um, the um, the trust used to be something that was provided by a central authority. You know, your credit card, your bank, um, sells you a service based on the trust that you'll be able to get your money out or the trust that uh, the plastic will be honored in the restaurant and that you'll end up paying. Um, and it's a centralized function that used to be made, of it, made possible by – made essential by a centralized network. Now that we have this distributed network, now that we have all this fishnet-like activity out there, suddenly trust can be distributed as well. And that's what blockchain is about. So it's a new definition of trust. And then the last component we've talked about already, which is cybersecurity the scourge of cybersecurity because um, uh, the bad guys will always have the incentive to figure out how to exploit this new network. And they only have to be successful once for there to be bad results.
0: Well, Tom Wheeler, the book is From Gutenberg to Google. It's an essential guidebook to how we got here and to framing these questions of where we go next. It's been a real pleasure to have you on with us here on the New Books Network. Uh, Thanks for your insights and thanks for your time today.
1: Nathan, thank you. It's been fun.
0: Tom Wheeler is the author of From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future, which has just been released by Brookings Institution Press. Wheeler was chairman of the Federal Communications Commission from 2013 to 2017. A longtime telecommunications executive, Wheeler was inducted into the Wireless Hall of Fame in 2003 and the Cable Television Hall of Fame in 2009. He is currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Wheeler's previous books include Take Command, Leadership Lessons from the Civil War, and Mr. Lincoln's T-Mails, the untold story of how Abraham Lincoln used the telegraph to win the Civil War. I'm Nathan Bierma. You've been listening to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.